Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendowed.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org health equity. From KVPR, you're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Today on our show, nearly two years into the pandemic, one of our own reporters shares her personal story about the loss of her grandfather to COVID-19. And later, Andy Warhol, A Life in Pop, opens at the Fresno Art Museum. But first, over the past two years, Fresno has spent $144 million to combat homelessness. One of the main investments during the pandemic has been the purchase of motels to convert to emergency shelters. For the first time last week, the city of Fresno held a town hall to hear from those living in the motels. As KVPR's Sarith Hawk reports, city leaders found one surprising pattern. Rows of metal folding chairs stood stark against an empty parking lot at the Valley Inn Motel on Parkway Drive. Clusters of residents huddled in groups while others sat dispersed. Three city council members took their seats in front of an audience of about 50 people. Miguel Arias, Esmeralda Soria, and Luis Chavez. Arias spoke first. Our goal here is to listen, listen directly to you. So we hope that you have enough trust in us and confidence that you will speak about what you need, what your experience has been, And the audience did share their experiences, but not everyone shared their names. Living in a motel is challenging, one person said, because of the rules and restrictions. And and a lot of us have been out here for 15 years. It's a big change, you know, we're stubborn in our old age, you know, but we're here and we're trying. Someone asked for more services at the motels. If you ask me, you should have a social worker here at all times. Another requested more services on the streets. We desperately need showers and places to wash clothing. Mostly, the residents just wanted to be treated with dignity and respect. Being homeless is not always a choice. And we're stigmatized and people treat us as if we choose to be homeless, that we made this choice, that our actions put us here. And that's not always the case. But one complaint that came up repeatedly was the struggle to get housing in order to leave the motels. One man named Jeremy lost his home in a fire a month ago. I mean, we would literally be sleeping in our cars right now if it weren't for this place. Before the pandemic, he worked in restaurants. But when the industry suffered during COVID, he had to max out his credit cards. And, you know, what do we know? A year and a half later, I can't rent a place because of my credit rating. Even though he and his wife work full time, he said he feels stuck where he is. Another woman who couldn't make her car payment said her lowered credit prevented her from renting. So I can't get into a home. Um, and CPS doesn't care that there's a housing shortage and I'm going to lose my babies because I can't find a home. An eviction record was a stumbling block for another resident. I got an eviction in 94. Never had a problem back to get to a place. I bought a house, you know. Now I can't even rent a place? That's ridiculous. Eric Payne, executive director of the Central Valley Urban Institute, attended the town hall. I think it's the start to a conversation. Um, I hope that the council members and other city leaders that are here that are present, that they really double down on their investment to mitigate the issues of those that are experiencing chronic homelessness. Payne's nonprofit focuses on affordable housing, working with low-income communities of color. He said lack of credit is an issue he deals with often. It is a barrier to uh, housing access and housing opportunity. We recognize um, that there are gaps. But there may be a solution with an existing city program, said H. Spees, the city's director of housing and homeless initiatives. We do have a program here in our community called Landlord Engagement and Mitigation that gives uh, extra case management to folks and, to, and working with landlords to give them incentives to take people, to give people a second, third, fourth chance who have had evictions. Councilmember Miguel Arias said the lack of credit issue was his most surprising takeaway. 
He hopes to incorporate these requests into the next wave of funding. What you heard today was, give us showers and restrooms where we're at. You know, give us the job listings, the access to the computer systems. You know, the lady just came up to me and said, I don't can't even get a, a bus pass to be able to get to work or to my medical appointments. Those are simple things that we all take for granted when we're not living in the streets, but they are critical if you want to lift yourself up from calling the streets of Fresno home. The town hall was a big first step for the unhoused community, said Des Martinez, homeless advocate and founder of the nonprofit We Are Not Invisible. I think they were scared, but a lot of them were so um, scared and angry at the time because they've never got a chance to express themselves. Residents got a chance to speak and submit a survey. The forums will help city leaders better understand what changes they need to tackle next. For KVPR News, I'm Sarith Hawk. We've just heard a report on the first ever Fresno Town Hall for the unhoused community, but there is a lot more going on to address the city's homelessness crisis. Joining me now to discuss some of the other developments underway to tackle this issue is KVPR's Sarith Hawk. Sarith, welcome. Thanks, Kathleen. So I understand that one of the developments you're following is Fresno's new Homeless Assistance Response Team, also known as HART, what is it? So HART is a coordinated response across three different agencies, all to address homelessness. It works as outreach to the Pavarello House, resolving property issues with code enforcement, and finally, law enforcement with Fresno Police. So they all work separately or together, and it really depends on what the need is. They respond to 311 calls for service and complaints, as well as check on active encampments throughout the city. It just started, so a lot of people are waiting and watching to see how the team does. And just this year, the city acquired two more motels to be used as temporary shelters, and that adds another 100 rooms to the city's stock. And how is that going with the new motels? I I understand that one at least has recently been filled. Yes, this week about 40 people were relocated from an encampment at H and San Benito Streets in downtown into the city's newly acquired Ambassador Inn on Olive Avenue. So this is pretty significant because it's been a long-standing encampment within Fresno's unhoused community. A lot of people moved in and out, um, but if you kind of know the downtown area, you see it. And many of the people who've stayed there have been there for at least two years It's also located just outside this state-owned lot where homeless advocate Des Martinez of the nonprofit We Are Not Invisible used to run her safe camp, and she did that for over a year. So I followed Des and the people inside the camp a year ago and saw their struggle to operate the camp and keep it safe. She was forced to close it in September of last year, though, and when that happened, a lot of the people just simply moved outside the gates, uh, so they stayed there. And now seeing these same people finally prepare for this next stage was really huge and for some really emotional. I spoke with Rose who stayed at this camp for two years with her husband Ernie. I think it's best because my kids won't talk to me if I don't go and I need them to talk to me you know I need to see my grandkids so I'm gonna go. Um, My stuff's ready, I'm ready, my dogs are ready, I just gotta get their leashes and that's it. So yeah um, I'm ready to go I guess. Why was the move so hard for her? She and her husband have just been living on the streets for the past four years, so they really got used to the lifestyle and the freedom around it. Uh, They're also both really community-oriented and enjoyed helping their neighbors. They kind of knew everybody. Um, They were both offered shelter last year, but they declined because Rose was afraid of losing her belongings. But this time, it was really her family and specifically her grandkids that made her change her mind to accept shelter. And she says she's really looked forward to it. I'm going to take a shower first. (laughs) Take a shower. I need to take a shower, a hot shower and sleep, you know, be able to sleep right, take my dogs a bath and get them situated too, you know, because it's a long time coming in. With an estimated population of 4,000 unhoused people in Fresno and, of course, limited shelter available, how does the city prioritize which areas to relocate people? So the city assesses areas based on risk and need. I talked to HSB's director of Fresno's Housing and Homelessness Initiatives. He says they've discovered that those most at risk are the ones living in encampments. And according to the mayor's office, there are 64 encampments right now in Fresno. 
beginning with the, the most challenged, meaning the highest number of folks, the most violence, the most calls for service, the most complaints from the community, the highest number of risk factors for health and safety, sanitation, etc. We choose an encampment, we do prior notification with, through outreach, and then we relocate. So the encampment at H in San Benito came to the top of this list to fill this next motel. Sarith, thank you so much for your reporting on this vitally important topic over the years. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks, Kathleen. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. We've hit a grim milestone in California. More than 80,000 Californians have died from COVID-19. Today, we're going to hear from the family of a farm worker who lived in Madera. His granddaughter is KVPR's Mati Bolaños. My grandpa's name was Tomas Reyes Soto, but we all called him Papi Tomas. He died in December 2020, a week before his 69th birthday. And since his death, you know, I've had a lot of time to think about his legacy and what his decisions meant for me and my future. I just feel this extreme sense of gratitude. My grandpa taught me the value of hard work, to have pride in my work, and that nothing was out of my reach. My grandpa was born in Pueblo Nuevo, Durango, Mexico in 1951, and he started working at a very young age. At about 12, he started going to Sinaloa to work picking tomatoes. He did that every year for a while, and when he was 16, on a trip there, he met my grandma, Elisa Aguilar Cepeda. And she says he was very direct and very interested in her from the beginning. Cuando él me conoció, fue y me dijo, Tú vas a ser mi esposa, mi chaparrita. <laughs> he went up to her and said, you're going to be my wife, chaparrita. And she told him, you're crazy. And that Saturday, he sent a mariachi that played music from northern Mexico. And that's my grandma singing Hechicera by Antonio Aguilar. After that, they married and had five kids together. And then shortly after that, they moved to Mexicali, which is a small town on the border of California and Mexico. And there he sold tacos. And his daughter, my mom, Monica, says some of her favorite memories are helping him cut the cabbage and tomatoes. I just remember he used to make like the best tacos, the best flour tortilla tacos with the best salsas. He made like really good spicy salsas. That was his thing. My grandma says my grandpa always had this bigger dream to move to the United States. He never went to school as a kid, and she says that he didn't want that for his kids. So in 1985, Papi Tomas took his wife and his kids through the desert to cross the border. La idea de que sus hijos tenían que criarse en Estados Unidos y que iban a hacer lo mejor. Gracias a Dios. He had the idea that his children had to grow up in the United States and that they were going to be the best there, she says. He was always proud of their accomplishments. And when their two oldest children graduated from university, she says he cried so hard. My mom, Elicha, says sometimes she felt like her kids love their dad more than her because she had to be the strict one. But my mom remembers her dad being even more strict than her mom. Especially when he came from a long day from work and we will see the truck and we will see the truck and we will run home, make sure that house was clean and everything was nice and tidy and because uh, Papi Tomas was coming. He was coming home from the fields where he picked garlic, olives and oranges and really all the crops in the Central Valley. And he did that for 40 years, but he wanted his kids to strive for more. Uh, he would tell all of us, <laughs> you better pay attention in school or this will be your future do well in school and uh, I I took it literally I wanted to get straight A's because I did not like working in the fields. My Papi Tomas's kids remember him as this tough love kind of dad but that really changed when he became a grandfather. 
My mom had me at 20 years old, and she was a single mother, so many people told her she was making the wrong decision by keeping me, including my grandpa. But she was determined to prove him and everyone else wrong. She was going to be a successful single mom because her dad taught her to be hardworking and determined. So she started working at a bank, and now she works as a lending consultant. My grandpa would always say, A chambiar porque nacimos bonitos pero pobres which means work hard because we were born good-looking but poor. And all in all, there were 15 of us grandchildren. My grandma says my grandpa would often count them. Se ponía a contarlos. <laughs> Se ponía a contarlos cada rato y cuántos son. So he started counting them, she says. Every few years he'd say, how many are there now? And he'd name us, but not by our actual names, by the nicknames he'd give us. One of my cousins was Rabanito, which is Spanish for radish because he blushed easily. And another one was Nadador, which is swimmer in English because he was trying to swim in the tub at only six months old. And I was Moniquita Jr., or his Madi Yupi. When I was a kid, he'd call and he'd say, Madi Yupi, do you want me to pick you up from school today? In Spanish. And after class, I'd run out and I'd see him waiting for me in his pickup truck, wearing his jeans, button-up shirt, hat, and his signature mustache, which he dyed black regularly uh, while the rest of his hair turned gray. And uh, on one of those days, I remember we stopped at the gas station and he called out to a woman on the street. He told her, be careful, immigration agents are driving around the neighborhood. He was always looking out for his undocumented community and for us grandkids. My grandpa had all of his grandchildren's birthdays memorized, and he'd call us every year on our birthday. Here's the last voicemail he left me on my birthday in 2020. Happy birthday to you, to you, to you. I could always count on my papi Tomas. He taught me what unconditional love is. He was the second father to all of us grandchildren. And he was even a father figure to his niece and nephew who didn't have a present father. When the pandemic started, my papi Tomas took it very seriously. He did have to go to work in the fields though, but that's pretty much all he did. Uh, and then in late November, my mom Elicha contracted COVID from working as a housekeeper at the hospital. My papi Tomas took care of her. Then a week or so later, he contracted the virus, and so did my mom. So my body was in a lot of pain. And all I can think of, I'm like, I hope that my dad is not in the same pain that I am going through. And the next day when we learned that he had passed away, it was painful, and it's still painful. He had been sick for a few days, and my mom Alicia tried convincing him to go to the hospital, but he didn't want to die alone. My mom Alicia worked at the hospital, so she told him she would check on him, but he still said no. When he died, my mom Alicia found him after working a night shift at the hospital. His kids and most of his grandkids showed up at the house shortly after hearing the news. But we were right parked right there outside the driveway. This is my cousin, Melanie. I remember the things so vividly. I remember I remember my mom screaming really loud. And she's like, oh, no, no, no. Like, you're lying. Like, in Spanish, she was like, you're lying, you're lying. No, he's fine, he's fine. My papi Tomas passed away on December 13th, 2020. He died in his sleep on his side, with his hands clasped together in front of him. For everyone, including my mom, the grief is still very real. It doesn't feel like it's real and it's, it's been a year and, and a month. You never want to go through that pain that, you, that your parents are gone, especially someone that you care so much. A year before my grandpa died, I graduated college and got an internship in D.C. The day before I left, I went to visit him, and I told him how grateful I was for his sacrifices, for the values he instilled in my mom, 
that she passed down to me, the values that allowed me to fly across the country to pursue my dream of becoming a reporter. We hugged and cried together. And later that day, my mom said he called her to tell her she did a good job raising me. I feel indebted to him and my mom for the sacrifices they made for me. I'm just happy I was able to tell him that before he passed away. This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. As part of the celebration of Black History Month, Fresno State is holding a three-part discussion series on the 1619 Project and the legacy of racial inequity in America. I spoke with two of the people behind those events, Fresno State's Dean of Library Services, Del Hornbuckle, and Professor Emeritus of History, Dr. Malik Simba. You know, when the 1619 Project first came out, you know, I remember being so struck by it. And, you know, thinking back, it's really hard for me to identify or to describe the emotions that it brought up for me as a Black American to see the New York Times, to see our nation's paper of record, not only acknowledge this grim milestone of the start of chattel slavery to the Americas, but to go a step further and map the ways in which the legacy of slavery continues to shape our society was so moving. Um, but I think the thing that that I walked away with that struck me the most was that, you know, the heart of the project is this reminder that in our fight for freedom and in our fight for justice, Black Americans all along have been calling on America to live up to its democratic ideals for once and for all. And, and I took so much pride in that. And then came the backlash, right? And so, you know, just to start, I would love to hear both of your thoughts about the 1619 Project in general and, and why you think it invoked so much outrage. Dean Hornbuckle, I'll start with you. Sure, and, and so glad to be here. Um, well, uh, I can echo uh, just what you shared. Um, the, the idea of it, and I, I started talking with a, a few professors about it for the very same reason. It's just been sitting with me for a while. And, um, and, and also I recently, finally, you know, the book's been published, I think since December. So I just purchased the book, but uh, that was really it. And there are actually two parts of the story for me. There's a 1619 project and what really happened to the vilification, what happened to Nicole Hannah-Jones uh, through her tenure process and how she is now at Howard University. Uh, just that, it, it speaks to everything that, that the 1619 Project is sort of, you know, showcasing, you know, just highlighting of the um, Black experience in this country. What she went through, uh, someone who wanted to go back to her alma mater um, and teach there, and she had so much, uh, bringing so much to the table, and how that tenure process, uh, she'd gone through the full process completely uh, qualified on many, many levels and um, was denied tenure. And then they sort of doubled down when all the bad press came and um, sort of offered her some kind of scaled down version of that. That's, that, struck, that struck out for me as much as the 1619 Project because that's exactly what she was speaking to, the systemic and institutional racism and um, how you're absolutely right. Uh, so much of the 1619 Project, it just kind of, it became this polarizing conversation about um, how America's history is taught and how what we think about our history and the sort of critical race theory that was brought into that. But really at the end of the day, for me at least, um, it was the centrality of slavery in the founding of this nation uh, and capitalism and absolutely the Black Americans role and really fighting for a true democracy. Dr. Simba, why do you think this project struck such a nerve? It struck a nerve because the intellectual tradition within this nation has always been one of a oppositional dialectic. By that I mean, you have a view of the past that is what one historian called the propaganda of history which is a creation of myth to basically glorify the achievements of the past. And that is dialectically opposed to the uh, view of the past that is a little bit more critical. 
Okay, and that's the word in critical race theory or what was originally known as critical legal theory long before this phrase critical race theory, but the word critical is in both phrases. And so critical history is about looking not at myth and the glorification of myth, but the reality of what actually happened. So the classic example would be the glorification of George Washington, uh, a man so pure in heart that he never told a lie. That's the cherry tree history. Of course, it's about George Washington telling the truth about he cut down a cherry tree, which he should not have done. So you got these creative stories and myths that glorify the sanctity of the founding fathers and so forth. On the other hand, in opposition, the critical history is about not a love story between Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, but the fact that she was a underage teenage girl who was raped by uh, the, the Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, when he was in Paris. And we have documents from John Adams's wife describing her apprehension that this young teenage girl, Sally Hemings, will be going to Paris with Jefferson unchaperoned. And she said, I warn you, this should not happen. So these documents is, is real history about an older, mature woman understanding what slavery does to men who have power over women. They export their sexuality and so forth. And so um, Mrs. Adams wrote a letter. And so that is critical race theory, meaning that we're not about supporting the myth of America the beautiful, which it is, but critical race theory is about the underside. It's about what the famous Swedish sociologist uh, wrote in his book in 1944, The American Dilemma. Not about the myth of the ideas of myth and American history, but as Myrtle said, Gernot Myrtle from Sweden, he said, the dilemma is the reality is not life, living in pursuit of happiness, it's about American slavery. And so mm. that is where critical race theory becomes problematic because you have people looking at the past in entirely two different ways. Right. And right. myth is so valid because it is what we call it feel good history. It makes you feel good. You, I, I want to come back to, to what you said earlier, this idea of propaganda of history. Dean Hornbuckle, I, I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts about how you go about being truthful, being accurate in your representation of history at a moment in history when a lot of people say we're sort of in this post fact space where we have become, you know, as Dr. Simba was just saying, so entrenched in our belief in these myths that we are, are that we hold so dear. How, how do you go about finding that, that balance and tackling that project? I think about um, how I engage with our students here uh, on campus and um, people, you know, in my personal life and um, how I think about uh, getting the information that I want. And uh, remember my, um, my, my basic uh, teaching, I'm a librarian by profession. And uh, it's so important that we, we all say this, you have to do the work. Um, you have to explore all of the documentation out there. Um, sometimes um, it may be a, a stack of nonfiction books on that topic. Uh, it may mean uh, a visit to archives uh, to look at primary sources, but that's, that's really how I put it all together. And uh, because I've done enough of this, that's why this, the 1619 uh, project is so important to me that uh, we, we can sort of dismiss it as, what, what did she call it, long form journalism? But there's quite a bit of factual that just kind of puts it all together for me because I've, I've read so much of everything else. It's so important to do the work. 
to, to answer your question. And that's really sort of where uh, there's been a departure where um, I don't think people are doing the work where we're not getting our news from the best sources. Uh, we're relying on social media far too much for, for this sort of thing. Um, and, and not reading the book, like purchasing the book, checking it out from your library, local library or reading it online um, so that you really read what exactly uh, the, the book, the story is about. There isn't enough of that. And I think that in terms of the discussion, um, it, it's completely uh, just uh, a conversation of regressive politics, misinformation, and you're absolutely right, sort of uh, perpetuating a myth and uh, an untruth. And I think that, again, doing some of that work, she's uncovered some of that, and um, she's forcing us to really kind of uh, examine some of all of these, these feature pieces uh, in U.S. history that we haven't wanted to talk about. It's just been a painful conversation we haven't wanted to have. And if you do the work, it's, it's not as painful in my view. You know, your, your comments make me think back to the summer of 2020 when we saw so many people um, attempt to do the work, right? They were um, buying the books, they were educating themselves, you know, but here we are two years later. And also here we are approaching what will be the 10th anniversary of the murder of Trayvon Martin, which really launched the Black Lives Matter movement as, as we know it today. And, and Dean Hornbuckle, I'll stick with you and then I'll come back to, to Dr. Simba. I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts about what has changed and, and what hasn't changed over the past decade. I don't think we did the work. I think uh, I think there was an attempt. There were a lot of book sales, um, a lot of signs and, and marches, et cetera, and a lot of, uh, of corporate America global multinational corporations uh, sort of made these pledges, these very public uh, pledges uh, supporting Black Lives Matter and et cetera. But um, then what? So what, what, if we, what if we just just watching the evening news, uh, we've watched it uh, sort of spell, uh, spill out um, from that point on up until the, the present. Um, the, the young man who marched into um, I, I can't even remember the state, uh, and I was just appalled by the ruling um, with uh, an assault weapon, and um, he, he's not in jail. And it, it actually, I just read in the, the newspaper the other day that um, I think he may be able to get his weapons back. So it, it, so you look at that, and, and we, we haven't had that conversation. And I think that there are some ways um, we have moved the needle. There's, there's always some level of progress, but in terms of really having those painful conversations that are really going to be difficult. And um, everyone has, has to feel uncomfortable on some level. Um, we just haven't had them. And again, to really have them, um, you have to do the work. And so that's why beyond the buying books and what we do in our personal lives, um, how have we forced our institutions to, to pick up some of this work? And that's kind of what, you know, with the presentation we're, we're planning, um, how have our, our local institutions, uh, you know, not just uh, academic institutions, our churches, uh, all of our social institutions, where have they picked up some of this work so that our communities feel that there's some support to do some of this work? Dr. Simba, what are your thoughts? Where, do, do you think we've made much progress over the past decade? Well, of course, of course. When you, when you grow up in the age of Jim Crow, like I did in Lexington, Kentucky, the transformation is light years from where it once was, that's true. But because the uh, essential social relations of white over black, and that's the name of a, a book that analyzes the 1619 Project, by Winthrop Jordan, until the social relationship changed dramatically, you can have people clinging to myth and others wanting to look at critical history that is real. And it's hard to bring people away from myth because it's so, so nice and cushy and warm. And for example, the everyone knows the now of critical race theory, everyone knows the relationship between Sally Hemmings and Jefferson. But there's a prominent book, novel, that treats Sally's relationship with Jefferson as a love story. And that's written by a Black woman. Okay? And uh, she lives in France, and she's married to a Frenchman. But it's interesting because it's something that people want People want to know that there's good in people and that people can see through race 
and and the foreign love and so forth. So Sally uh, Hemmings and Jefferson uh, with this black oh, woman writer, uh, it's 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 a nice story, but it's not real. So and you peel off the veneer of myth, you get that ugliness that no one wants to look at. That's the problem. No one wants to look at ugliness when you can feel warm and cushy and protected in myth. That's right. That's okay. Right. I give, I, in my book and in my class, I talk about Prudence Crandall. Well, who is Prudence Crandall? She is a young white woman whose uncles are involved in the anti-slavery movement. She has a school uh, for white girls, uh, pre-teenage girls, 14-year-old uh, girls in Canterbury, Connecticut. So in the 1840s, uh, she embraces the anti-slavery movement, which is really driven by uh, Christian faith or the interpretation of Christian faith that the anti-slavery people held that all men are equal, men and women are equal for the eyes of God and should be treated as equals. So Prudence decided to admit one black teenage girl to her school. All the good parents, white parents of Canterbury, Connecticut withdrew their white teenage girls from the school. Prudence Crandall was arrested, put in jail, and while in jail, the good citizens of Canterbury, Connecticut, uh, acquire some oxen, big cattle, <laughs> and uh, tied the school to the oxen and drove it, pulled it to the river and dumped it in the river. Prudence Crandall is a hero that most people don't, don't know about. That is the ugly side and the positive side of American history. Critical race theory is 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 both you can't understand the negative without the positive so the negative is that prudence crandall wanted to fight against slavery slavery is a reality the positive is that she embraced integration of her school so critical race theory is it's not negative it's actually positive but when you as a gop person as someone on the conservative right, uh, if you don't want to hear the stories that are different than yours, then critical race theory is attacked as something un-American, blah, blah, blah. It's this, uh, and that's the that's dilemma. It's, it's, there's nothing about critical race theory that is not positive about American history. I mean, Civil War was a positive. The people on the right, GOP, they don't even want to discuss the Civil War because to discuss the Civil War means that there are some, many, tens of thousands of American, uh, white Americans who took a stand for racial equality, took a stand against racial injustice. And once you get into a mindset that you don't want to hear truth to power, you just don't want to hear it. I was sharing with Dean Hornbrook the other day. They, they, they're talking, the GOP and the, and the right are talking like the famous Marxist uh, uh, leader, uh, Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro was asked one day, why doesn't he have freedom of press in, in, in Cuba? And Fidel said, why should I have to listen to my detractors and my enemies? And that's the GOP position on critical race theory. Why should they listen or hear people destroying the myth and the myths that they hold there? And that's why they don't want it to be taught. No different than Fidel Castro. He's not gonna listen to is detractors. 
I've been talking with Dean Del Hornbuckle, uh, Dean of Library Services at Fresno State, and Dr. Malik Simba, Professor Emeritus of History at Fresno State. Both are involved in a project at Fresno State this month talking about the 1619 Project um, in recognition of Black History Month. Uh, thank you both so much for being on the show. Oh, thank, thank you. you for inviting us. Take care. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. A major exhibition of the works of Andy Warhol opens this weekend at the Fresno Art Museum. To learn more about it, I spoke with the museum's executive director, Michelle Ellis Precy. She started the conversation by explaining how the collection came to Fresno. The Fresno Art Museum and the Bank of America have a relationship with a program called Museums on Us. And for the last three years, we have worked with Bank of America and their employees in any Bank of America checking account person uh, or credit card holder has free access to the museum one weekend a month. So they can bring their children, their families, um, and they can experience the museum without any cost to them. So one of the perks of having this ongoing relationship is that we learned about uh, an exhibition program that the Bank of America hosts. And the exhibitions are free of charge to the hosting institutions, which is huge when you're talking about traveling exhibitions of the caliber that they offer. So we selected the Warhol exhibition to come to the Fresno Art Museum out of probably 30 exhibitions available to us. Sometimes there were conflicts. So when we wanted a particular show, it wasn't available for that time slot. So fortunately, this Warhol exhibition was available when we could pop it into place. And so now it's opening up on Saturday and we're so jazzed. It's magnificent. Well, tell us about it. Uh, give us some more specifics. What kind of works can we expect? Well, there are 94 works of art in this exhibition and they fill all three of our primo galleries, the Fig Art, the Duncan and the Hallowell galleries. And they are portfolios that Warhol did. So let's say he took um, a soup can and he did the Campbell soup can for uh, man eaters. And there is no tomato soup, but there is alphabet soup and mushroom soup. And so there will be a portfolio of all of the soup cans that he did. So there will be, I think there are nine soup cans in this exhibition. So Basically the works are from the 60s, some are from the 70s and 80s. And Warhol was known for taking your mundane, normal, everyday utilitarian object, such as a Brillo pad box or a soup can or Disney characters, wildlife characters, and making them into artworks um, that became famous in their own right. So. We are just excited. They range from collages and drawings to silk screens that are very, very complicated on the surface. Some of them can take up to 10 different screens just to complete one print. So each screen is a different color. So those are layered one on top of each other with the pull of the silk screen. And we're going to have an artist um, come to the museum and demonstrate this, this technique several times over the course of the run of the exhibition. Andy Warhol is an, a household name, but his contributions to the art world may not be fully understood or, or fully appreciated by many in the public. And, and I guarantee you there is somebody listening to this who's thinking to themselves, I know what a Campbell soup can looks like. Like, why would I, right. why would I go to an art museum to see a soup can? What do you say to that? Can you just explain what makes Warhol's work so special? Well, considering he was born in 1928, when he became of age, pop art became a movement. And he helped cement this pop art movement. So when people come to see his prints, they're going to learn a lot about the pop art movement as well. And there were a number of artists who worked in that time frame from the 50s through the 70s who took, uh, for instance, a gas station marquee and they made a gas station marquee an artwork. They took what was familiar to us as everyday objects 
and they elevated them to interesting shapes and sizes and colorations. And so they'll learn far more about American art history through this show than just looking at objects that they think belong on their pantry shelf, for instance. Um, also, Andy Warhol started out as an illustrator in New York City in the early 50s, and he was a shoe designer for Chaparelli, and he uh, was a dress designer, and he did undergarments. So his beginnings were in the fashion industry, and his ability to translate those early efforts into fine art, uh, they shocked people of the 50s. I mean, it was not an easy thing to absorb pop art, but I think um, it, it became so huge and so fascinating to the public that it has it is part of American art history now, an absolute important part. You know, I've in, in thinking about Warhol, it seems to me that this is a really interesting moment in our history to revisit his work, given that mm -hmm. so much of it was exploring things like popular culture or advertising or marketing right. or, or celebrity. Um, right. you know, and, and there's, of course, that famous quote that he actually, I understand he actually did not say, but this idea of everybody having 15 minutes of fame, um, exactly. which, is, which is an idea that we associate with Warhol. And, and certainly we're seeing it with the rise of social media and, and this changing definition of celebrity in our culture. I'm just wondering, right. what are your thoughts about what it means to um, interact with Warhol's work today? Well, I think that we recycle appreciations for things, including fashion and art and our utilitarian objects in our home. And we're going to have a party here, a cocktail party called 15 Minutes of Fame because of the name of the Fresno Art Museum. And our, uh, our moniker is FAM. So we have FAM and a lowercase e. And That's perfect. People, people are gonna come dressed in this as 60s people. And we're going to have an Andy Warhol impersonator. And I think there is joy in looking at a trend that is within our lifetimes for many of us um, and not that too far in the past for others who didn't live through the 50s and 60s. Um, and I think that what he did was joyful. His colors were joyful. His iconography was joyful. I mean, giant pansies and flowers and the, his color combinations. I think I'll take a quote out of our press release and it says, perhaps Warhol's greatest innovation was that he saw no limits to his practice. His pop sensibility embraced an anything can be art approach, approach to images, ideas, and even innovation itself. So he was unrivaled in his fearlessness in translating what we took for granted around us into something that could be appreciated beyond that idea. That's so interesting. Um, oh, and, and going back to this event, when, when is it? It's March 5th. It's here at the museum. And you can buy tickets um, through our website, www.fresnoartmuseum.org. It is a fundraiser. Food for Thought is catering hors d'oeuvres and we'll have a nose bar. We'll have Andy Warhol here. And uh, it's just going to be a fabulous night. We actually have a Warhol print that we're raffling that um, is an image that is in the exhibition of his rhinoceros that happened to come to us through one of our board members. And people are to dress in the 60s. And it's going to be great. It's just going to be a great experience. Plus, we're having this artist printmaker pulling prints in the, in the classroom in the back of the museum. So people can actually go back and see the technique that Eddie Warhol applied uh, for this exhibition way back when. That sounds like <laughs> a lot of fun. It so, will be. So you are reopening this weekend, not just with uh, Warhol, but also with some other exhibits. I'd love to hear more about that before I let you go. I understand you're going to be uh, pulling from your permanent collection to have some Ansel Adams photographs on display. Yes. In our renovated Moradian Gallery, we have Ansel Adams 120 years. So 2022 marks the 120th anniversary of 
uh, Ansel Adams' birth. And it's, it's also the anniversary of the first publication of Ansel Adams' photographs and, and writings in the Sierra Club Bulletin. That's the 100th anniversary of that. So we pulled from our permanent collection and his black and white images fill the Meridian Gallery, which is our most intimate space. And it's exquisite. And I think that this each section of the museum this time around is anchored so beautifully and excellently. People are not going to want to leave once they come in. They'll be here for quite a while. Well, and it's got to be such a special moment for art lovers in the Central Valley who are accustomed to, you know, driving to San Francisco or driving to LA right. to see major works like this. I mean, the fact that it's coming to Fresno is a really big deal. Yes, I mean, this, this museum is a jewel in this city's crown and we have been here for 73 years. Another artist that has a one person show throughout the lobby and concourse and back spaces of the museum is uh, Sonoma painter, Chester Arnold who taught for years in the North Bay and has been, it's a retrospective covering 50 years of his work from 1971 to 2021. And he and I, I'm the curator for that show. And he and I worked over the last 10 months culling thousands of paintings uh, painted over this period of time down to less than 50 for this show. So each space in this museum is stupendous. And I really do believe that people will want to come and stay. Yes, indeed. We, our staff is as professional as any staff in any bigger museum in any bigger city in this state. And I think that this show really does exemplify our place in the museum field uh, with, within the state of California. Well, it is very exciting. And, and yes, of course, the Fresno Art Museum is an absolute treasure in our community. So thank you so much for everything you do, but particularly for taking time to talk with us about the museum reopening this weekend. I've been talking with Michelle Alice Pracy, Executive Director and Chief Curator of the Fresno Art Museum. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kathleen, so much. And that's today's Valley Edition. You can hear all this and more on our website, kvpr.org. You could also download the podcast and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We've got an app. It's called KVPR. The show is produced by our news team, including Alice Daniel, Carrie Klein, Mathi Bolaños, and Sarith Hawk. Technical support is from Don Weaver. I'm your host, Kathleen Schock. Thanks for listening. Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendowed.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org health equity.